0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Left Out on WRCT. This is uh, Left Out, is a reality-based independent radio, uh, and it's also on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Here we discuss news and, um, from the perspective left out of the mainstream media. It's usually co-hosted by myself, Danny Slater, and Bob Harper. Bob is out of town today, and um, today's program is produced by John Katruba. Uh, You're invited to call the program. Actually, I don't recommend that because I believe we'll have the phones tied up. But um, if the phones aren't being used, you can call us up at 412-268-9728. And uh, you can also communicate with us on the AOL chat room called Left Space Out. Left Space Out. That's the chat room. So today um, we're going to have a special program with uh, two guests if things work out. The first one is going to be Robert Perry. Who's an independent journalist and um, formerly a reporter for mainstream newspapers and magazines. He was one of the uh, reporters who exposed the Iran-Contra affair in the uh, in the eighties, and uh, he's also a proprietor of a program called of a website called consortium Consortium News, an independent um, journalist website. He's also written numerous books, and uh, the latest of which is called neck deep the disastrous presidency of george w bush you can uh, find out more about robert perry on his website which um com, and um that's uh one of our guests he will be on shortly so uh we'll be talking about a number of issues today and um John, do we have uh Robert Perry on the air on the phone yet? Robert, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Great. Thank you for joining us on uh Left Out. Um we were also hoping to get another another uh host on the program called, uh, Bernard Chazelle and I believe he'll be calling us up and joining the program shortly. So, uh Robert, I was uh just introducing you a little bit. I don't know if you heard what I said, but um there are a number of issues that you know you and I talked on the phone before, and uh, also that that you've written about recently in in your uh, on your uh, consortium news website, right? I've been also looking at your book, your excellent book, uh, uh, Neck Deep: The Disastrous Presidency of George W. Bush, which you co-authored with your two sons, I believe. Correct. So uh, maybe we'll just start out if if, if uh, one one topic that uh, I think we could talk about for a few minutes and and um, would be what the whole the whole story of the move on ad and and what uh how that unfolded and um, con- congress's response and move on's response and the rights response and, and uh and so on I mean I can tell that story or you or you could just jump right in and uh start talking about it uh, if if you'd like
1: well as I think probably most of your listeners know the uh, uh there was this situation where general uh, David Petraeus was being promoted by President Bush as the uh, essentially the person who would give the uh, assessment of whether or not the 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 surge in iraq had been working and whether or not uh the congress should continue to support uh having us forces in iraq so he had become somewhat of a controversial figure uh because bush had put him out that far uh to try to undercut his credibility uh moveon.org which is a liberal or left of center uh, activist group uh, bought an ad in the new york times which had the headline uh, general petraeus or general Betray Us," and the pun on his name uh, was designed to suggest that he was not being honest and forthright in describing the situation uh, on the ground in iraq that in effect he was shilling for the bush administration now that um in a sense uh raised a number of Legitimate issues, but also because of the pun on his name, uh, allowed move on to be attacked for essentially making fun of somebody's name, which is, is considered fairly juvenile and something we probably haven't heard much of since since grade school. Um, but it was how they chose to make their their point, and it became a distraction uh, for the Democrats, uh, and it became a target for the Republicans who zeroed in on that and on the idea that uh, this was not just an attack on General Petraeus but on uh, all, but on the American military and its integrity so the the debate about whether or not the war was uh, sh- worth continuing or whether it should be brought to a close was somewhat lost in this furor over this this ad yeah
0: Robert just one second uh, I, I believe we have Bernard Giselle on the line Bernard hey, are Denny,
2: you- how are you doing Fine. I'm here. I got had the wrong number.
0: Sorry. Oh, okay. Well, we've uh, uh, been talking to Robert Perry just for the last couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert, I don't know if you know Bernard, but he's a professor at Princeton. who's written a number of really brilliant essays um, regarding Bush and the war and so on. So uh, I just want to we're just going to have a discussion here and um, see where it goes and and try to have, you know have an entertaining, interesting discussion. Uh, but uh, I interrupted you, Robert. You were talking. You were just saying about talking about the ad and the sort of juvenile approach that they took, and the fact that it distracted the the uh, discussion away from the issue of the war to this sort of silly, uh, you know, debate about you know this- the ad.
1: Right. But it also underscored something which I think is important to know, which is th- there is this asymmetry or imbalance in the way the American news media now exists and is. As you may, may know, I have spent most of my career uh, with the Associated Press and Newsweek, and then and PBS Frontline, and I've, so I've worked for a number of uh, what would be considered mainstream news organizations. And what I saw during that time, especially in the 1980s, was uh, the success that the conservative side on the on the American spectrum was having in building their own media. For in in, in one in one sense. But also targeting aggressive attacks against mainstream journalists who were not towing the line as they saw it. In some ways, that was a reaction to what had happened in the 70s with Watergate and the end of the Vietnam War, the bitterness over the Pentagon Papers, and so forth. But it was something that those of us in the mainstream press who were dealing with stories uh, in ways that sometimes the right did not like uh, had to confront. Uh, in effect, we were being uh, constantly attacked and and in many cases neutralized. Some, some people lost jobs, others uh, were, were, had their careers damaged in, in a variety of ways because they were finding themselves the targets of this very aggressive effort that was building up in the 1980s. And, and as the right built up its own news media, it had even more uh, uh, effect and ability to damage people who were in its way. Uh, from the, from the, by the time you get to the early 90s, you have Rush Limbaugh and the talk radio Element coming in by the mid 90s, you have Fox News. So over time, this imbalance developed, and the mainstream press tended to tilt to the right because journalists and producers and uh, people who were trying to make their career knew that they were in danger if they came on the wrong side of this. They could be attacked so aggressively, and, those, and the and the left, the progressive side of the American political spectrum, didn't did not really engage nearly as much. They didn't really try to build their own news media, except for a few underfunded outfits, but they'd never put the kind of money and attention and effort into it that the right had done. So by the time you get to this point uh, of, of the George W. Bush presidency, uh, much was in line for the, the mainstream press to, to become what it's become, essentially a conveyor belt for the propaganda that the Bush administration was putting out about Iraq or about any number of issues. And when you saw something like this move-on event occur, you saw the same thing. You saw the, the right be able to make a huge issue out of something that was essentially rather trivial, uh, an unforced error, uh, I think you would agree, but, but still something that was a fairly trivial unforced error. And that became the focus, whereas the bigger problems that, uh, that many Americans are very concerned about, the, uh, the continued carnage in Iraq, uh, was treated almost as a secondary element. And I think that's it's a message that needs to be, be understood by many Americans who, who don't really, I think, who don't have the full grasp of what's happened to their, to their news media and how these different dynamics have come into play. Uh, so what we end up with is the New York Times ultimately attacking On. The, uh, the public editor of the New York Times, Clark Hoyt, came out with a, a, uh, an article in the Week in Review section of the Sunday Times which basically attacked their customer. <laughs> move on had paid for this ad. Uh Hoyt attacks both the uh for them doing it for the Times accepting it and then said they should have been charged more for it. And Move on then, I guess as an effort to staunch the bleeding, uh agreed to to send another another seventy seven thousand dollars to the New York Times to pay the full amount that would have been uh, that should have been charged for the ad. You know,
0: I, I wrote to move on a couple of, a couple of messages to them uh, when I found out I found that out on your website, and then I it, <clears throat> I wrote to them a couple of times to like asked them to explain this. There's nothing about this on their website about their their double payment for the ad, and I, I just can't make much sense out of that at all because I've done I've done billboards for. Democracy Now, here, and you you, make, you sign a contract with the billboard company, and they give you. They say we will give you this billboard on this street, you know, for this number of days, and you pay us this money, and and <laughs> that's what they. Apparently, I mean, Nuvon, there must be a contract like that for the, for putting an ad in the New York Times, right?
1: And if the Times made a mistake, it's the Times it, mistake. Exactly, it, it's it not move able... on
0: Exactly, it's not move on's fault if the Times made a mistake, and is no absolutely no guilt, no no uh unethical aspect at all if you paid the contract it's it's so i i don't understand that one bit it's Apparently, like very unaggressive felt
1: they'd made, they'd made they'd made they'd raised so much money as a result of the ad that it wasn't a big deal for them but 77,000 dollars is a lot of money for uh the kinds of uh small progressive uh operations that have, that that try to fill this very large void in the American political system for democracy now or for uh, many of the, of the independent radio stations for many of the independent uh, uh, internet sites 77 thousand dollars is a, a, a lot of money right so to just sort of give it away uh, but it shows again w- when this imbalance comes to, to play when when you are the target of a furore of this kind and move on was uh, you feel like you've got to do something to stop the attacks and maybe what they're thinking was was well if we put this money in we'll at least uh, eliminate the argument that we were getting a special deal.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh well, although
1: that really should be something the time should have dealt with. Yeah, well but
0: that's that's uh Well Bernard, maybe you should jump in and have, if you have anything to say. If you...
2: Well yeah, well move on dot org. Uh I mean I'm as progressive as it gets, but frankly, I'm not impressed by that organization. I mean, that is a stupid tactical move, just dumb. I mean, it really makes them look like a bunch of wealthy teenagers uh, playing with their money. Uh, But the issue is deeper with MoveOn.org. Okay, first of all, that mistake is some is really a sign that they have no clue about the American system, because I'm telling you, Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, they're waiting every single day for things like this to happen. I mean, this is really a gift uh, for those guys. But the larger issue I'd like to bring up is that uh, over the years, MoveOn.org uh, really has managed to annoy me quite a bit, because... Uh, they go at the very tactical level during the, uh, Kerry, uh, run for the election. They, they basically try to, to, uh, uh, to, to make us forget that there's a war in Iraq. They've been very tepid about any of the really major issues. They've been very concentrated a bit like Delhi cause to the next victory, you know, next week or the week after that in this or that congressional district. And I think they've kind of, lost from, okay, maybe I'm biased here, but I think they've lost, you know, the, 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 what the big price is all about. And uh, so to some extent, you know, when I saw they were making such a stupid move, I just shrugged my shoulders and say, well, that figures.
0: Yeah. So uh, another point that, that I, I've, I've, I know Robert has, has made before is that the, um, well, actually, well, Robert pointed me to a, a proposal that was actually sent to move on for them to start to fund a more Aggressive media presence, um, sort of building more infrastructure, uh, but they, they just uh, they said well we're not into the media, so they just they just want to spend money day to day on ads and and other things. Maybe you so, can-
1: essentially, essentially, I think it's fair to say that they see themselves as a group that wants a seat at the democratic table, and so they've tried to be extremely tactical. And I think I think Bernard's right. This is the that they have been they, they've approached things in extremely tactical ways. Uh, you know they come out of originally the in nineteen ninety eight when the uh, when there was the effort to impeach uh, President Clinton over lying about the sex uh, involvement with Monica lewinsky, and their point was move on uh, censure and move on and that became the, the name of their group. so they've always been rather narrow, not not a, they've not seen things in a very broad way and during the uh, and after the Democrats uh, succeeded in two thousand in. Winning control of Congress, they held little demonstrations, but they'd always try to focus the demonstrations on whatever the uh, the position of the Democratic Party was at that point. There was one time when some people were in one of their marches to the White House, and some of the people in the march wanted to call for impeachment. And at, at that point, uh, of course, Nancy Pelosi had taken impeachment off the table, and so Move on was told people in the march they had to either shut up or leave the march because they were chanting for Bush's impeachment. So it's it's that there's that element to move on. They really are like daily costs, almost a group that that is more interested in being part of the democratic infrastructure than being an independent voice for for uh, the people on the internet or more generally the American public.
0: Yeah. So well, I mean I yeah I've worked I've worked on some of their some of their campaigns. I think some of them have been, been all organized all right. Some of them haven't been uh the phone the phone banking and and uh the showing of of uh, the showing of films and stuff like that um but they certainly haven't done anything with regard to building any kind of infrastructure uh, it's just sort of a day-to-day response to to what's happening um, so do you know i mean You mentioned uh, the 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 way the right has built the infrastructure up over the years. The the media, the the, the talk radio, and then the think there's the think tanks. There's like a half dozen major right wing think tanks. Uh, Somehow they've managed to get funding for all of these institutions. Um, It seems as though the the wealthy right wingers are sort of much more better organized or spending money or have more money than than the left.
1: I'm not sure they have more money, but they've used it more strategically. If you go back again to that period of the mid-1970s, and this was a key moment, uh, Nixon had been forced out of office because of the Watergate scandal, where the mainstream press had carried the ball on that pretty much. The, the Washington Post and New York Times to a lesser degree. Then you had the Pentagon Papers, which of course the New York Times broke and others followed on. So there was a sense among people on the right that the mainstream media was their enemy. Uh, and even though those stories were obviously legitimate, uh, President Nixon was guilty in the Watergate case, uh, and the Pentagon Papers were an important element of American history to have out. But the right saw that as a threat. They saw the the that independence of the media, which was starting to show itself in the mid-'70s, as a threat to their power. So they organized very consciously to build up um, some of their own, first of all, magazines, Sort of more low-budget types, and by the way, at that point, the the right, the right did not have less or more money than than the, than some of the more left-wing or left-of-center uh, foundations. They probably had about the same amount, but they chose to put their money strategically into what they called the war of ideas, and that involved building up this ability to get their message to both develop their message through think tanks, but then get it to the American people outside the the parameters of the the mainstream media, and they also chose to attack the mainstream media. They had groups like Accuracy in Media, uh, some of Brent Bazell's operations where they, target in, they targeted individual journalists, and, and people don't realize this perhaps, but the, the number of investigative journalists in Washington is fairly small, really in the, in the dozens, maybe scores, but not a large number of people. So if, if, you, if you can target a small group that's causing you difficulty and try to discredit them and harass them... You can have a good deal of effect in silencing that group, or reshaping it, or forcing it to be more timid. So that's their that was their approach. Conversely, on the, on the progressive or left of center side, there was a feeling in the seven in the late seventies that it was time to get back to their roots. People sort of abandoned Washington. Many of the uh, progressive underground newspapers that existed at the time went under or were bought up by corporations. There wasn't a real commitment to do media. The thinking was that the key thing was to organize around various social issues. Uh, sometimes wealthy wealthy left liberal foundations put their money into specific kinds of uh, do gooding projects which were noble in their own way, uh, buying up endangered wetlands, helping to feed the poor, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But they did not think strategically and, and, and that then it, uh, evolved during the '80s under Reagan and Bush, where Reagan and Bush then invested a lot of government resources, to do what they call public diplomacy or perception management, where they also worked with hand-in-glove with some of these right-wing groups against some of the journalists, tried to build up the, the right-wing media. Ronald Reagan would give stories to the Washington Times, which was a, a a new right-wing newspaper that was started in the 1980s, to sort of help them develop a reputation. So you had this real effort, this coordinated effort on the right, and then it kept maturing and maturing. and and there was never a real response, uh, any kind of commensurate response from the left. So the mainstream press basically sought some kind of safety, and the way you got it, you were safer was to not offend the right. And that's, I think, a, an important understanding of the dynamic that uh, people operated in the way they felt their personal self interest was defined, uh, and those who didn't were, were uh, targeted and essentially eliminated from having that voice in the, in, in, the, in the media to reach the American people. And so we ended up with what we have ended up with. But it wasn't as much that there wasn't the same amount of uh, money or there was a great differential there. Eventually, as the right m- continued moving on with this, they built up, they got Murdoch involved, they had uh, at some point they had Bob Maxwell doing some things before his death, they had Reverend sun Myung Moon with his money coming in for the Washington Times and some of, the ma- some of the magazines he funded. So there were a number of these right-wing operatives, and then, of course, the Scafes and the Smith-Richardson Foundations and so forth. But there was just never an effort, and there still to this day has not been a corresponding effort from the progressive side to confront that. And that's the point you made about Move on, Move on has this cachet, this, this capability of raising lots of money on the Internet but it would not use that much, that that ability to help support media. There's still this attitude on the left that media is not important when, in fact, it's extremely important.
0: So uh, we're talking to Robert Perry and to Bernard Giselle. If you want to give us a call, uh, you actually can't go on the air because we have two people on the air already, but uh, if you call 412-268-9728, my producer, John, can uh, take your question. So, uh, well... You know, we had a conversation a few days ago planning for this program, Robert and I um and I mentioned a uh, organization called um well, I mean, maybe we should res- before I go into this, maybe Bernard, if you have any comments directly relating to that, or should- yeah,
2: maybe I'll make a quick comment well, first of all, I must say that uh i uh, not only I completely agree with what Robert just said, but I think he-, he is really the expert, the real pro, and uh we're so lucky to have him here because. It's really a very brilliant, uh, I think, analysis of what's really happened. I think it's it's important. It's a very strong phenomenon. I uh, yeah, uh, he said, I think it really started when Goldwater really, you know, got trounced, and I think the, Repo- the Republican Party decided to really do something about it. And Gerald Ford was the last centrist, if you will, uh, Republican president. Uh, and you have to admire them for many reasons. Okay, first of all, it takes skill to put under one tent to to unite all these different threats. I mean, you've got the libertarian, uh, Wall Street, Alan Greenspan type. You've got the Christian crazy, you know, the James Dobson type. You've got the imperialists like Cheney. You've got the nativists like Buchanan. Of course, they're a little bit outside of the tent now. But for many years, those people really were united for one cause, and perhaps George Bush will have succeeded in destroying all that unity. That's possible. Uh, But you have to give them credit. And people like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and all these people, uh, in their evil ways, I mean, I totally loathe all the that they represent, but I do admire their uh, accomplishments. There's no doubt about it. Now, a quick point, which is, why is it that they they were so successful and on the left uh, somehow uh there were not now could it be because the money is on the right i i don't believe that actually i mean i think there's just as much money everywhere here and uh, but i do believe though that um there are two main differences uh one is uh, it 's a cliche, but the right wing people tend to believe strongly in a very few simple things. Uh, the individual is is at the heart of everything, and the individual is surrounded by enemies, so they live in a state of paranoia uh, of constant paranoia, but uh, uh, what 's their own particular self interest becomes the common interest and that 's the running theme all the time from from low taxes from invading countries of people we don 't like, and so on. The liberals, on the other hand are uh, They their strong belief is to be nice, decent people. That that's really what they want at heart. They just want to be nice people. There shouldn't be too much poverty, but a little bit is okay. Uh, Healthcare, yeah, people should be able to uh, uh, you know to go to the hospital and be treated. But you know, let's not make a big deal uh, out of it. And and I believe, though, maybe this my European slant here that the reason for this is because uh, for about a century the entire uh discourse ideology of the left came from socialism i'm not saying that it was socialism i'm just saying that the entire philosophical rhetoric came all the all the uh intellectual uh starter, if you will came from there the minute that died and it was officially dead you know when that wall fell in berlin the left simply ran away from anything that smacked of socialism because that meant uh uh, that meant disaster and failure and totalitarianism and so on. But they had nothing to fall back on, besides being nice people and being decent. But then we do not believe in any one or two strong common uh, themes, I I think.
0: Hmm. Well, they somehow managed also to, to establish these, um, I don't know what the right word is, uh, these simplistic worldviews such as... Uh, Everything is better done the mar- the market is the best way of doing anything uh big government is always less efficient than than business and and there are people who fervently believe this stuff and and somehow that that has been able to convince uh people to support the right um in you know e- even in in situations where it's just obviously com- completely collapsed the enron scandal all, all these scandals that have that occurred you know in the last few years uh just there's just a plethora of examples of, of this terrible terrible results of this but somehow these simplistic ideas have caught have caught on and i guess what you're saying bernard is there's the left has not responded well they don't seem to have responded very strongly maybe maybe it's related to what you said about avoiding being accused of being a socialist or something i don't I, know I,
2: i'd go even further than that i really believe <clears> they don't They don't believe in it uh, deep inside. I really think that many of them do think the government is is a problem. And uh, they've seen what these war on poverty, those war on drugs, those war on everything, and those things never work. So they've concluded that government is basically crap. And uh, now they believe that less than Republicans, but it's just a matter of degree. I think uh, at the very root of a progressive agenda, you have to have a belief that the center of discussion should be what's good for society, what's good for the community, what's good for the co- you know what's the collective good. Uh, but that talk is illegal. I mean, it's basically
0: <laughs> taboo. <laughs> you,
2: right. It's taboo. You cannot talk like this.
0: There's nobody, but there is nobody. If you look at the whole notion of the, the commons, there is no uh, wealthy group that is going to, going out and, and and defending the commons. And so it's been eroded enormously o- over the years. I mean, the simplest example is the copyright expansion that occurred for, because of Mickey Mouse. Um, but that, that's just one of a million examples of of, uh, of the erosion of the commons. I agree. So, yeah, great.
2: Yeah.
0: so uh, Robert, there's another another thing we did discuss uh, uh, recently. Was um, I mentioned to you? Well, we were talking about alternative media sources, and one thing I mentioned was the, the thing called the real news. Um, which is a, I think it's realnews.com, which is uh, trying to build up, uh, to become an alternative news network, for a te- sort of an alternative television. Um, maybe you could talk a little about that. You seem to know quite a bit about that.
1: Well, I think I'm on one of their advisory boards. I mean, they've gone through different, uh, different uh, shapes. And I think, obviously, it's very important to build uh, independent, honest media, because I think uh, many of the things you're talking about, uh, there needs to be an honest discussion of these things in the United States, and 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 if you have one side that dominates, in the case of the right, where they are getting their message out every day, and sometimes it's honest, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they they'll, they'll cherry pick, uh... you know, they'll get that extreme example, they'll, uh, and they'll exploit it to try to drive the point home that that the that the that the, that the government is doing bad things in terms of social programs, or that that people are are bringing too many frivolous lawsuits and that that should be contained. So if you constantly are hearing just one side of an argument, and there's really no commitment, as Bernard's point is that maybe that uh, on the liberal side there's just not the kind of uh, fierce uh, feeling about some of these things as there might be on the right, that that, that you're just not going to have a full democratic debate, and people will tend to believe what they have heard, Especially when they hear it from a number, number of various sources in, in often very sophisticated, clever ways. Often the, left will, the the right will present this information as if the right is is being victimized, and there's this idea of turning make even uh, uh, white, w- fairly well-to-do men feel that they're the victims of something affirmative action <laughs> right. and there are various examples. So, so if you're hearing this constant barrage from one side, and the other side has chosen really not to engage in any similar way with that debate, you're going to have a very distorted political system, which is what I think we have at this point. And the mainstream people will not try to will not will not step in. And some of some on the left feel, Well why why isn't the New York Times stepping in and challenging some of these lies? Why isn't but the point is that the New York Times has its own agenda and its own interests. It doesn't you know the reporters there and the editors there and the people who are in the executive suites there don't see their role as being advocates in fact they see their role of anything of trying to avoid attacks from the right because that's how your career is damaged so they will bend over backwards sometimes to be harder on democrats or liberals than they are on republicans to show they're not liberal and and that's the reality and if that's the way it's going to be then people are not going to get when they turn on their radios they're not going to have a lot of information there that's going to say why a liberal agenda might be better in some cases than a conservative agenda? They're going to hear that liberalism is terrible, evil, yeah. rotten. Well, there's a, and, and that's what they get. So there are groups, but there are these groups. So in the case of this real news group, uh, I think they have this belief that they can uh, use some of the uh, new technologies, uh, especially the internet and the ability to have broadband video, uh, to counter this. And 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 part of their concept is good. That, they, that they're trying to be a, 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 a network for the English-speaking world, not just for Americans, but for people in uh, the U.K., people in Australia, people in India. You know, everywhere that English is spoken would, is sort of the goal. Uh, the weaknesses in some of this on the left is that, is that there, there is not a willingness to be practical sometimes. And I've always argued that there's really nothing wrong with taking ads. I mean, you may want to reject certain ads because they, you find them offensive or you think they're counterproductive to your point of view. That's fine. That's traditionally what newspapers have done and what TV stations have done. But to simply say we're not going to take commercials of any sort because that taints us, that makes us impure, is, I think, a mistake, uh, because it forces you then to spend a huge amount of time fundraising, uh Taking money that that, uh, that that is not from a new pool of money, but it's from it's from American citizens who who do want to support this, and, and there are and there's a limited amount of money they have to to contribute to these kinds of things. So you're not bringing in new money; you're kind of just taking some of that existing money. And 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 I think that a, a group like this could have, could be much more effective if they'd put aside some of their desire for perfection and and get in and try to sell ads ads that might not be socially uh, objectionable yeah. well, and, and make some and, and actually have a uh, and then be able also, also to pay people to do the work There's, well often what happens on the left is that these these these, these operations are so underfunded that what they ha- end up doing is going to people who are professionals and saying could you work for free or could you work for basically for free and, and that's not a sustainable model and it, and it goes against what the right has done. The right has made uh, and it has created an infrastructure of media where people can really make money. Yes, they prime the pump with foundations and grants and so forth early on, but now it's so big that if you're one of these right-wing uh, personalities, you do a book, it can be pushed to the top of the bestseller list, and you can make real money on that. So so the right has created a, a, a dynamic in its media that is itself profitable, whereas on the, on the left side of the spectrum, it's kind of, well, can you give me a story for free? And, and frankly, it becomes difficult to do that over well, time th- and to sustain it.
0: I think an example, though, that's closer to what you're saying is Air America, because they, they do have commercials, a lot of commercials, which I actually kind of really don't like listening to a radio with commercials. Uh, but uh, I, I actually listen to their podcast, which I pay for, I have subscription to it, and there's some very good co- commentators: uh, Rachel Maddow, uh, good, yeah. Sam Cedar, and uh, they've they're trying to make a go of sort of what you're saying because it is a very a commercial and and network, which is you know, but it's it's still I guess floundering a bit. But
1: uh, well, it's never had, it's never had the money behind it to do what really needs to be done, and and it's difficult to make this thing work now on on the left side because. Uh, the, the right has been doing it for 30 years and building this up gradually. Uh, now there been, have been efforts in the past few years on the left to try to start some things, but they're starting in a very hostile environment. Uh, it's, very, it's much more difficult now to make a go of these things, and unless you really put a lot of money into them at the beginning, they're not going to probably succeed. In the case of Air America, it got started with, with just barely enough money to get going, it almost crashed when it when it took off in in the spring of 2004. It did go through a bankruptcy reorganization in 2006, and it continues to struggle. But it's never had the real support of the of the liberal community. There are plenty of folks in Hollywood, for instance, who could could famous actors and actresses who could simply say to their uh, to their uh, to, to their movie companies, "I want a certain percentage of of the advertising to go to a place like Air America," but it doesn't seem to happen. There's not that sense of of any unity of sort of hmm. get behind something.
0: Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, uh, Bernard, just to jump in, if you have anything anything to say about any of these 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 things or anything. Well, else. I'm just
2: curious to uh, hear Robert's view about how he thinks the uh the, the online which is a new phenomenon the fact that there's so much that comes from the web um will affect or might change that structure. I mean I was uh struck by a comment uh Seymour Hirsch said in an interview recently where he said uh when I started out at the New Yorker, when I had a big story, I would go to the New York Times and A P and so on to kinda to kind of have them echo my story because otherwise it'd just be buried in the New Yorker and at the end. And he says now with the New Yorker being online, I don't even bother to do that. Well of course he's more famous now. But he was not just talking about himself, he was talking about we just put it online and millions just read it and we don't need to have those echo chambers. Uh so I thought that was an interesting comment. I wonder what Robert has to say.
1: Well I happen I know Sai pretty well. The um and he worked for A P as I did, uh he worked there earlier uh and he was Frustrated with the AP, this is back during the Vietnam War, and he had a number of stories that uh, they were not really putting out, and so he he left and he went to work for. he helped create something called Dispatch News, which was kind of a a wire service of its own sort. This is back in the uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, and that's where they, the the, the My Lai massacre story is the most famous story they put out. But then eventually they kind of went under. As so i was hired by the New York Times and. And, and, the, and the mainstream press was, was doing its job a little better for a while but uh, but what I think your points well taken and, and in, my, in my case I had similar problems I was with the AP in uh, in the 80s doing the Iran what became the iran-contra scandal and while we pushed the stories out through the bureaucracy there was they were they were not welcome let's put it that way we had to really fight to get those stories on the wire and and so uh, there were a lot of hard feelings I went to Newsweek uh, after the scandal finally broke into the open I went to Newsweek in 87 and encountered the same kind of hostility to these sorts of stories there there was at that point by that point the neoconservatives had really begun to have their uh, got to get to get their clutches onto some of these major news organizations and some of the top people at Newsweek would I think be called neoconservatives uh, and so that was the situation in the late 80s and early 90s and and there were so many stories, though. By the time we get to the mid-'90s, I was discovering documents and important historical records. Uh, so I had some things that were secret and top secret relating to such things as uh, who was responsible for the Iran-Iraq war in uh, in 1980. There, there was a top secret document I got hold of that was written by Secretary of State Haig to Ronald Reagan, in which Haig describes conversations he had with Prince Fahad of Saudi Arabia claiming that, Jimmy Carter had given a green light to Saddam Hussein to attack Iran. These are important historical points. Now, whether or not in the, in the full context you want to believe Hague or not and Fahad, but still, these are things that should have been out there. Mm-hmm. And I, try, I took them to people in the mid-'80s, the New Yorker, among others, and no one wanted them. Hmm. Well, uh, but so so, so I, that, that's when I started from ConsortiumNews.com. My oldest son had just gone out of college and said, you know, Dad, there's this thing called the Internet, and if, you, if you're frustrated, why don't you just try to set up a website? So we set up what was, what was then the first investigative m- magazine on the Internet, ConsortiumNews.com, which we, and we started putting out some of these stories. Now, I think the Internet has, can play an important role and has played an important role, but I think it's very easy to overstate that role. Uh, to this point, there has been no real business model that has worked very effectively on the internet. Uh, advertising has just not been there to the degree it needs to be there. Uh, there's been minimal fina- uh, foundation support for these kinds of operations. They're heavily dependent upon donations or people willing to work for free or on their own as their own blog or something. So it's very difficult to make a sustaining effort. Now, what Cy si is saying is that he, he he works for The New Yorker, which is a conventional publication. It's a magazine with ads and the rest of it. Uh, they, sell their, they sell their magazines on the streets of New York City. So he is saying that, yes, so he gets his, 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 uh, his salary paid there, but then when they put their stories up, and some they do allow to go out for free, some they do uh, require you to buy the magazine. If you've gone to their website, some are up and some aren't. But they've been putting size stories up, and those get distributed widely across the Internet. So he's right about that. But still, it, that is not a really a pure Internet play. It is just that, uh si is saying that when you have uh, conventional media like the new yorker and the and and you and you put that through the internet it does reach a lot of people
0: yeah well i i, I think it, it it remains to be seen just how the internet's going to relate to newspapers and and magazines and and uh, other other media how that's going to going to play out how, how the financial model could possibly work but uh there was um well Let's see. It's a bit a bit a bit slightly different topic well a couple of topics well yeah, yeah those is related so i've been doing i've been listening to podcasts quite a bit now and i've been as i said I picked up air America and there's a lot of other great programs that you can get uh via podcasts and just a and i'm also working at you know with w r c t trying to get some progressive programming like democracy now on the air uh looking at the the radio landscape you know in this in this city uh it's it's all completely locked up uh uh, there ought to be, ideally, in my view, an, a, another progress, a, a major you know, progressive radio station here in, in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, but there isn't one. And uh, there's no way to get that to happen because it would cost millions of dollars. The only way is to buy an existing station. You can't get a new station. So it would cost millions of dollars and it would just be a huge uh, project to get that underway. Um, so instead, if, if everybody were starting to listen gradually, so it's a log jam, basically they can clog up the the, the 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 mainstream news sort of clogs up has filled filled this up and not made room. It, it's too expensive and difficult for other alternative media to even get in there. So I was just thinking that possibly podcasts could be made somehow to be um, uh, become more common. I mean, a lot, you see people walking down the street. You, you know, half the people you pass have a have the headphones on. At least in the, uh, where I you know where I hang out. Um, but if that would sort of break through this whole logjam of radio. And uh, I was just thinking of a story about uh, Lou Hill, who founded the Pacifica Network. He had the first FM radio station on the West Coast. At that time, uh, nobody had FM radios. He had a station, but nobody had a radio. So what he did was he ordered thousands of cheap radios, and he gave them away to people. And so what I'm suggesting is an analogous move that, that somehow, as a, as a way of building infrastructure to fit this to the previous discussion, we could start you know, have these cheap iPod-type devices and, and, and give them away and allow people to charge them up with their programs at the library and, and somehow uh, have this alternative way of breaking you know getting around this logjam. jam. That's a that's, that's off-the-wall idea
1: Well, perhaps you should talk to Al Gore. I think he's on the board at Apple. <laughs> they might uh they might be willing to try something like that uh for their own reason. Yeah.
0: So uh another interesting thing that happened late in the last couple of weeks is what Dan Rather is doing. He's uh, suing CBS. And uh the all, all, uh, it seemed like uh, the right wing has come out against, you know, well, everybody's coming out against him and uh, beating him up for this. Um but of course what's being missed uh, throughout the whole all of this discussion is that when he pres- this is about the 60 Minutes program, in case our listeners don't know, w- which Dan Rather uh, presented um, uh, some memos and a whole bunch of other evidence about George Bush's uh, uh, lack of service in the in the Air National Guard and how he got into it through you know preferential treatment because of his father's you know political uh, connections. Um, uh, but there were some documents that were questionable and they were claimed to be forgeries, and and so eventually Dan, Dan Rather had to with you know had to back down from the story and eventually they fi- they fired him from CBS as a result of this um, but what's getting lost is that these memos were almost irrelevant it, this one small bit of evidence that just corroborated everything else the story is, is complete with uh, dozens of other pieces of evidence but that that whole issue gets has gotten lost here
1: well I think the, 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 there's also the point that it's not good the documents were forgeries this was a, a good example though of how the how the right-wing media apparatus can take something and make it into a big issue and really confuse the public and and ultimately then pressure or stampede a major news organization like CBS News into not just getting rid of Dan Rather, who was their longtime anchor, but they fired four producers, including uh, some who were responsible for bringing out the Apple Grape story just a few months earlier. They, they'd broken this major historical story, right. and, 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 and they, they were all basically 50- all cashiered. And it was, and, and the investigation that CBS put together was kind of fraudulent. They had uh, Attorney General Thornburg as one of the investigators who had worked for uh, George H. W. Bush and remains very close to the family. But but what happened was when those when those rather irrelevant memos were put out there, because as you point out, there was plenty of evidence, including witnesses and and interviews that that were supporting the basic point that that Bush had sort of. Uh, uh, had not fulfilled his National Guard duty properly, but even those documents, the key thing that was pointed out by the right-wing blogs and became a big issue on the right was that there were this, there was a superscript for what, for in, in terms of like uh, you know the there was a I, might, I can't forget the number but say it was like a, a five with a th at the top, and the argument was that uh, that back in the seventies uh, there was no such provision for doing superscripts. And so that must have meant, according to this theory, was that it was done. It was done on a on a Microsoft Word product, which automatically puts the, the th in superscript, as we probably a lot of us know from working on, the, on computers. But but I had worked on Selectric typewriters, and I'm sure a lot of other people have. And there was a way you could you could do superscripts on Selectric typewriters, which is what this was on. And interestingly, if you if one examined the document carefully. There was one place where it was not superscript, so you had a th that was in regular type. Now, with a selectric, you had to do a, a procedure to get the th to be to be superscript. And if you forgot to do that, it would just be regular th. On a Microsoft Word, it automatically goes to superscript yeah. unless you unless you reverse it somehow. Well, there was another. So, so, actually, so actually, there was evidence mm-hmm. that the documents were not done on a Microsoft Word product; that they had they might well have been done some other way. Uh, clearly, there should have been more work vetting the documents, but it again shows how a stampede can be started by this right wing media to distort the reality, and the full reality was that that the the whole point of the sixty minutes to piece was correct and then actually, an interesting thing that people have sort of missed is that even Dan Rather seems to have missed this is that a couple weeks after this furor broke, another set of documents were released by the government about Bush's National Guard duty, and they included his resignation letter from the, uh, from the National Guard where he, he wrote, when he was up in Boston at Harvard Business School, he wrote saying, I cannot fulfill, and he misspelled fulfill, my responsibilities as part of the National Guard, so I want to be out. And that was when they, they allowed him to, to be discharged honorably. But he, so he himself, acknowledged in his own writing that he did not want to bother to fulfill his right. duties anymore. So but that was sort of lost too because there was no focus on that. It was it was reported by Reuters and some other news agencies, but there was no focus on that. Instead the focus became Dan Rather, Mary Mapes and some of these producers at 60 at 60 minutes who were fired.
0: Yeah. Right. So it it um, another thing about those memos apparently uh, Mary Mapes has analyzed the content of the memos the information in them the dates the names that all of that stuff is completely perfect and a forger not having the real would have, would have a very difficult time getting every single one of those sort of ancillary details correct so it could have been that they were forged by copying a real document using Microsoft Word i mean you know but that that's all just a distraction from the main point of it as you say
2: and this time, on top of John Kerry being Swiss, uh, voted. I mean, you gotta admire the power of, of these radio talk shows. I mean, they could make people believe that two plus three is five and probably get away with it. Uh, because, I mean, it, this is remarkable that you have George Bush who sat out the Vietnam War the National Guard, uh, and Kerry who went to Vietnam and, and who was the coward and who was the hero during the campaign. And it, and it stuck. I mean, it actually worked. It's it, it's completely r- remarkable. Right. I mean, it's, uh, or take the, or that's different, but still, the immigration bill, that's an amazing, also, uh, thing that happened there, because there's a piece of legislation that was supported both by the White House and by most Democrats, so you would think it'd be a shoo-in. It, it failed. They lost, because, you know, the... Uh, the radio, the right-wing radio guy got on the case. Hmm. Well, there are other reasons as well, I'm sure, but I, but I know this played a huge role.
0: But I mean, also with with, the, with the, the, they found many many examples of of Rush Limbaugh doing exactly the same kind of thing that on was accused of using, betray us uh, in that same way about another senator about, or about another military right. pe- military people. He's done this for years. He, he said that the so- soldiers who don't agree with the invasion are. are uh, our phony soldiers. I mean, he's just done this con- constantly, and it just, it's just it's it's an amazing hypocrisy. But that you know doesn't seem to matter at all.
1: Well, you even saw, for instance, just this weekend, you saw sixty Minutes. Uh, now, this new Tame sixty Minutes uh, uh, do a a, com- a completely favorable and and uncritical uh, set of interviews with uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Where he 's not challenged at all on many of these factual claims, and there 's been a good deal of investigative work that has been done about who was telling the truth whether it was uh, whether he was someone who engaged in sexual harassment or didn't and it and it's not it, it wasn 't just one wo- one woman against him there were multiple women who were making these claims but but sixty minutes did not want to go into that. they basically gave Clarence Thomas a free shot to say whatever he wanted they did call um Anita Hill, and asked if she wanted to go on, and she declined. But that really isn't sufficient in this sort of case. This is there's, there's a, is, there, is a huge body of evidence. There have been books written on this. They're, they could have done a much better job, but they, they, they chose not to offend the right. So what they presented was Clarence Thomas as this victim. Uh, and and you know, some people have looked at this, and, and I, was, uh, I was watching Bill Bennett just on, on CNN today saying, what a, what a great job. Uh, 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 60 <laughs> Minutes did, but what yeah. he's really saying is they, they didn't ask a single tough question the entire show. So yeah. I, think, I think that's what we're getting. And, 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 if you, and if you follow him on the point I was trying to make about the way, being a mainstream journalist in this environment, if you are someone like a Mary Mapes or one of those other producers who have had a long and distinguished career and done your work well and, and done it right... And someone can simply get on some right-wing blog and say there's a question about some, some memo, which, uh, because of some TH that was put into a superscript, and that becomes the basis for you to be, uh, essentially, have your entire career ruined and your reputation destroyed, you're going to do exactly what Steve Croft did in interviewing Clarence Thomas. You're not going to offend the right. You
0: mean the next person who comes along who sees this story? Watch, right. watch the way it unfolds. You're not going to do the same thing. You're right. going
1: to stay as far away as you can. Yeah. You see the story
2: uh, last week where uh, Olbermann, Keith Olbermann, had to apologize to this congresswoman whose name I forget because he confronted her about a soldier killed in Iraq from her district.
0: No, no, and it wasn't Olbermann. It was uh, it was Abrams. No, 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 no. It was Dan Abrams. Uh, no,
2: no, 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 no. No, no, Olber- no Olbermann... Is the one who, who uh, criticized the congresswoman, and then Olderman was forced to apologize by Abrams, by his boss.
1: I, was, I didn't see that.
0: Wait a minute. Dan, okay. I, I th- no, there's, so there a one, there's a guy named boss. Dan Abrams who has a program. No, Dan Abrams is, is about 25 years old. Yeah, but oh, really? yeah, he's the, the managing editor.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, he's the he,
2: managing editor. He called him into his office within a few hours, and he said you have to apologize the next day. Oh, no, no, it
0: wasn't Abrams. I'm sorry. It was. No, no sorry, it wasn't Oberman. It was uh, Schuster. Uh, David Schuster. Oh, sorry,
2: sorry. My apologies. Pa- David yeah. Schuster. David yeah, 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 Schuster, Schuster, you're right. Yeah, he
0: interviewed that, that woman. He was quite. Um, it was Schuster,
2: right. Yeah, sorry.
0: But he couldn't remember. she he's, He was ridiculing her because she couldn't remember the. The name of the soldier who died, yeah. and I don't know if that's really uh, totally legitimate, but she was one of the most vehement, you know, criticizers of, of Move On. It was all, you know, completely, yeah. you know, wailing about that. So it, it, it is good to call those people. But yeah, I see. So the point is that this, this newsman was, was really put on the carpet for, for, for doing this, uh, this aggressive uh, thing. You yeah,
1: which is a strange way of operating. You basically learn not to be aggressive when it comes to uh, someone who's on the right. And, but, but you know it's a free shot. So if it's Al Gore, as, as in, in, in my book, uh, Next Deep, we go through how Al Gore was treated by the media in 2000, but not just by the right-wing media, but by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Quotes were made up. They were, you know, One of the basic rules of journalism is you're supposed to try to get the quotes right. And, and, and if you're not perfect, you're, you're never supposed to distort what someone says. You know, if you maybe maybe have a word off or something, but it's supposed to reflect their actual intent. Now, with Gore, they got the quotes wrong. This is the New York Times and the Washington Post. They completely made a 180-degree difference what he was trying to say. Right. I
0: invented the Internet as one of the, well, one of the was, bogus never quotes. Said that, right. Course, it's a but, completely bogus. Right. But there
1: was also the thing about Love Canal that he was the one who discovered it. Yeah, yeah. It, it was completely, he was saying the opposite. He was actually crediting somebody else. But <laughs> this was the way it works. And, and none of And those reporters were not punished. If they had made a a similar mistake relating to someone on the right, say with George W. Bush, as you saw would happen with Mary Mate, their careers would have been destroyed. So if you're a journalist and you're making you've got to that point in your life where you've been in the business for a quarter century or so and you're finally making some good money, you're just not going to take those risks and that's what we see happening. You'd rather have the country go off in this strange direction. Then, put yourself in a position that you couldn 't pay your mortgage and and that 's the phenomenon yeah. until that until that 's addressed i don 't know how we, we we get a handle on the problems facing the country, and the only way to address it I think is to build an infrastructure of for honest media where people can actually if they if they have to leave the mainstream media there 's a place for them to go where yeah. they can do their work and make a living.
0: So there was a. I was looking at reading your book, uh, and uh, there's a. Uh, well, it's, it's an excellent book, a summary of all the, the things that went on, the, the what we're talking about, and many other things in the book. Neck deep, the disastrous presidency of George W. Bush by Robert, Sam and Nat Perry, uh, and you can you can get this book on, on um, Robert's website consortiumnews.com. Anyway, there's a quote in here from so Gore after after the elect, after he lost the election he because of all of this stuff we've been talking about, he went on and he started giving these speeches. Like, uh, before the Iraq War, I think in late 2002, he gave a speech in San Francisco, basically, you know, pointing out that this would be a gigantic mistake to invade Iraq. And uh, I've listened to the speech. It's an excellent speech. And uh, at the time, he was lambasted by the mainstream media. And you've got some discussion of that in the book. Uh, there's a quote from Michael Kelly. Uh, of the Washington, He was the Washington Post columnist. Um, I think he later eventually went to the Atlantic and oh, then really? went to Iraq and he, he got killed in a accident, car accident. Right. Yeah. But it, one of the well, he wrote uh, Gore's, Gore's speech was one no decent politician could have delivered. Uh, it was dishonest, cheap, low. It was hollow. It was bereft of policy, of solutions, of constructive ideas, very nearly of facts. Bereft of anything other than taunts and jibes and embarrassingly, embarrassingly obvious lies. Anyway, it goes on like this. I mean, just. <laughs> amazing attack. And then you listen to the speech and everything Gore said was completely right. Totally anticipating all the, many of the terrible problems that we, that, that, that occurred in Iraq. And so, uh, you know, Gore has gone on to, to give a whole series of, of brilliant speeches, Abu Ghraib, about legal issues, uh, and then, of course, global warming, too. So, um, we can all cry about, you know, the fact that he isn't the president. <laughs>
2: But I think the liberal politicians they have to learn to fight back. Usually they just take it. I mean they just you know they um, like Kerry for example, and that's a perfect example. I, I mean he should have challenged those people in a debate or something and say, okay, let's just talk you know one on one. But they don't do that. They just
1: hope it'll go away. Well, I think you're right. You're right, Bernard. But the the, the the problem is this is a phenomenon they've had to deal with too. And I, I knew John Kerry back in the eighties. But he was one of the few courageous politicians who was looking into the Contra problems. And he was looking into the Contra drug trafficking and into the Ali North Network at the time I was for the Associated Press back in 85 and 86. And he was trashed mercilessly. And then when even after Rand after, after ran Contra broke, uh, he, was, he still pursued the Contra drug story. And he was right. He had it right. This was a major serious problem that was being covered up by the U.S. government. The Contras were deeply involved in drug trafficking. But he was ridiculed by the New York Times and the Washington Post, and ultimately he reached that point by the time you get to the mid-'90s where he put himself under the wing of these world-weary consultants who said, don't talk about those kinds of things. Don't take on those controversial issues. Just present yourself as a war hero. That will do it. And, and that's the Kerry that the American people saw in 2000, 2004 was this overcoached, timid guy. But that wasn't the John Kerry that I had known a decade earlier when he was a young, courageous senator.
2: Yeah. It's,
1: it just, it's, just, it, it's, it's the way the process works. If, if, a, if a politician or a journalist does their job right, they get the crap kicked out of them, and so they stop doing it over time.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting how Gore sort of changed after after leaving politics. He, be, he, he got some of that courage back again. He did. So I think we need to wrap up the program. Next show is uh, the people are getting together, getting ready for the next program uh, on WRCT here. We've been uh, having a very interesting discussion with um, Robert Perry of ConsortiumNews.com and a recent author of Neck Deep, the Disastrous Presidency of George W. Bush. And also Bernard Giselle of Princeton University, and essayist, and um, uh, you can read his essays at uh, his website at Princeton. So um, thanks to John Kutruba for producing the show, and uh, we'll see you again in two weeks' time.
2: Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Thanks, Robert.